Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Decast episode 56. I'm here with Brian Dunning. Welcome, Brian. Hey, welcome to you too. <laughs> You're on my screen, I'm on yours. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Brian is a, a writer uh, based in California. He's a producer and his focus is on science and skepticism. So he has a podcast that's been going now for 12, 13 years called Skeptoid. That's a yeah, long time. 2006. It sure wow. is a long time. <laughs> um, so why don't you give people a little background of how did you get into this uh, skepticism in general uh, and, and sort of a, a background of what you do and the sort of content that you put out and why? You know, I, I think I give the same story that uh, a lot of people give uh, when asked that question. People who are in my business who do science communication. Uh, we were all total nerds growing up. Um, you know, we all watch Star Trek and science fiction. We're all into that stuff. But many of us also, um, especially as kids, were into UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoots and aliens, reading all of those books, all of the, you know, the Amityville horror for everything else. Uh, I certainly was. And again, like many of my peers, I believed every word of it. You know, that's not hard when you're 10 years old. But it just instilled this really deep, passion and interest for weird subjects and weird stuff. And then as many of us got older, and this is my story as well, uh, we go into the sciences. I studied computer science, but I also studied writing for film and television. So that's not quite as much of a hard science. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it, it just kind of it, it just kind of gels this this intersection of weird stories, urban legend, paranormal tales, and hard science. And studying the real science and the true history behind each of these, uh, and 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 they all have things like sociology behind them. So you you get into these weird historical trends of of you know, what kinds of things are people thinking about in the world and why, and how does that drive and influence some of these urban legends and the growth of them. So there's a lot of these fascinating currents um, in in these related sciences as well as just the hard science. So. Um, after working in very boring industries for a long, long time, when podcasting finally became a thing, I said, you know, I here I've got this, the entertainment industry background and the computer science background. I go, oh my gosh, this is exactly, exactly what I want to do. Hmm. Uh, so I began doing, um, doing the Skeptoid podcast just, just as a hobby. At that time in 2006, you had to have um, I think five episodes in your feed before iTunes would list it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I put, I made five, the first five episodes and listed it. And now I had the advantage of being early in, so it was a lot easier to be a bigger fish in those days. Right. And I got a huge response, and it literally grew from there and has never looked back. Um, it became my full time job in 2010. In 2012, it became a nonprofit. And since then, um, I'm still doing the podcast weekly, but we're also producing documentary films and web series, educational material. It's kind of become this uh, um, 
many-headed beast, to borrow the mm -hmm. term from Chris Hardwick at Nerdist, although not as many-headed as, as Nerdist is, but, uh, mm -hmm. but it's still fun, it's still fascinating, and I, I, I still just love kind of unpacking these fascinating subjects. Yeah, and you put out these very nice and short uh, episodes that are about 15 to 20 minutes usually. Uh, less than that, to 12 yeah. to 14, yeah. Okay, and, it, and did you start off like that, or did you find that... Uh, as you went along and did you so, you know that that's that's a that's actually an important question um at, at, at the beginning when i started there was the main reason for that is because i had limited time um and i wanted to do them really well and so they're scripted um, unlike most podcasts mm -hmm. um, so i would spend an entire week fully immersed in a subject doing research and everything and coming up with basically 1750 words uh, you know, condensed content. And that was kind of out of necessity because doing more work wouldn't really have been possible on a fast production time frame like that. And it also turned out to be super beneficial because to this day, one of the most common pieces of praise that I hear from listeners is, I love that it's so short. It fits into my daily walk or my commute or whatever it is. Yep. They don't have to split it into multiple pieces. And the third reason why it's helpful is that uh, since it's scripted and since it's reasonably short, it, the transcript makes a great web page. Yes. And now that I've done 666 episodes, I've got 666 pages of original content. Yes, I know. We can talk <laughs> about that sign. in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I've got 666 pages of uh, original dense content that Google loves. So if you Google any of these topics, I'm almost always on the first page. Right. That's been hugely helpful and hugely key to the to the success of, you know, originally the podcast and now the company. Hmm. So was there anybody in your life, uh, whether family or friends or peers, as you were, that uh, you specifically maybe influenced you to do this? Like certain people you saw that uh, weren't thinking correctly about certain things, or was it more just a personal? Uh, you know, a personal uh, journey thing. Or... I think I, I think that um, when I first started doing it, deciding to do it as a hobby um, and figuring I was going to do five or ten episodes and have it out of my system, at that point, um, really, I just had a number of pet peeves that continually irked me every time I would hear people talk about this stuff. Um, and so the first five episodes were really Brian's top five pet peeves as of 2006. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it wasn't really until after I got that off my chest and then, you know, another probably 30 or 40 episodes after that, that were much the same way that I started getting feedback like, Hey, we're, we're using these shows in the schools. Uh, and, um, you know, it began to have, it grew into something larger than I'd anticipated. And that's when it became clear hey, you need to start doing this in more of a formal kind of way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's when I kind of became a full-time science writer and, and was applying that to Skeptoid and making it making it more academic, but also keeping it me. Um, and that means it's not too academic and not too dense. It's Sure. Know, it's a little fun, too. You got, you know, you do your little uh, yeah. breakaways and different voices and stuff like that sometimes. To, you know, the, it, it makes it interesting. Um so skepticism in a large sense is 
because what you do is science scientific skepticism more more so but skepticism uh also applies to other areas like in philosophy and it can apply to politics and stuff like that as well right do you do you focus on one type of skepticism or do you apply it to all facets yeah i mean i mean skepticism is is an unfortunate word because in you know it does have a scientific connotation that's fairly different from the way that the word is used in general conversation among most people. Um, so, and, and, and I wish I had called this, the podcast anything other than Skeptoid. I wish I'd given it a title like the Urban Legend Show or something like that. Uh, okay. Because I think having the word skeptic in the title, Skeptoid, um, I think it's probably hurt it, done more harm than good. Because people hear that, they say, oh, skeptic. Oh, you're the people who think we didn't go to the moon. Or you're the people who think vaccines are killing us or who right. think 9-11 was an inside job. It often has exactly the opposite connotation. Uh, now, in a, in yeah. a more scientific um, usage, the word is, it basically means that we're applying a certain standard of evidence. Um, we start with a null hypothesis and then we accept evidence that passes a bar of, of, of quality. And if it doesn't, we, we discard it. So really, scientific skepticism is the process of applying a standard of evidence to these fun urban legends aliens sure. and ghost stories yeah and and some of the topics you deal with you you, you mentioned that they don't really have a, a scientific question around them like um uh like the simulation theory um almost mm -hmm. like numerology maybe could be in that category too there's not really a way to test these things it's more of a or even ghosts and stuff the paranormal stuff it's it's often anecdotal it's people's personal experiences and and it's you'll have a tough time convincing someone who's seen a ghost that they haven't seen one and you can't you just really can't test it they, we've never caught them on video you know mick west has gone through all the ufo videos that are that are out there and we've <laughs> determined that they're all you know street lights or planes flying in certain directions like um so have you had any personal strange coincidences or anything that because uh, uh, you're often some some of your episodes you surprise yourself so you'll have uh, you know surprise the skeptic and there's certain topics that uh, mm -hmm. you didn't even know uh, something about that will that will surprise you have you ever had anything maybe in your life that you couldn't find a rational explanation for or uh, you know like Michael Shermer has a story of his wife uh, right. having a, ra a broken radio that. Uh, that started playing this love song at the specific time that she was thinking about her father that was out of the country uh, during their wedding day, something like that, that they, it had been broken for months. They could not fix it. And it started playing on its own at this, at the exact right time. And it made her feel a certain way. Uh, and so a lot of people have these experiences and have no way to explain them. Do you live a perfectly rational, <laughs> skeptic <laughs> life that has no strange coincidences in it? Or, you know, or I've had a number of things that that happened to me that I I I didn't know what they were, or I assumed that they were a real ghost or something. For in some cases, the vast majority of my life, until I finally got around to doing an episode on that and learned stuff myself and said, oh. Well, gee, that's exactly what my experience was. Oh my gosh, I had no idea that's a real phenomenon in, you know, neurology or whatever it was. Right. Um, one of those was, and, and this is something that that greatly informed those early years when I was talking about when I was reading books and believing everything. One of them was when I was, I was probably three or four, so really too young to remember this, but mostly hearing my mom tell about it. Uh, she's a single mom. She's got me and her brother, my brother, in the house. And uh, she 
can't wake up one morning because there's this pair of invisible hands pushing back on her shoulders, pushing her back into the bed, and she was having to fight it, and she couldn't move because these hands were so strong holding her down. And after minutes of struggling, she finally was able to get out of the room. And so she never went in that room again, and I heard all about that, and I never even considered any explanation other than there was a malevolent ghost of some kind in that room. And it wasn't until I was doing an episode on, um, uh, I believe I was calling it night terrors. So night terrors are a thing. And it didn't even occur to me to connect this to my mom's experience. But then you find about, out about sleep paralysis yep. and exactly what these the symptoms are that people report. And it was boom, 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 all the way down the line, exactly what my mom had reported. So that was one. I mean, I had... I had I had other cases like that too, um, one that was not too many years ago, uh, which was very very exciting because I'd been doing skeptoid for years, and I'm in this mindset of you know oh, you know everything's got some rational explanation, and so you kind of you kind of lose hope that anything interesting is actually going to happen. Right. And I'm I'm camping out in Death Valley with some friends, and it's late at night. We look up at the sky. And here is this enormous shape flying overhead, blocking out the stars. Um, um, this this uh, sort of an arrow, uh, lights in an arrow-shaped pattern mm-hmm. going overhead, one horizon to the other. And then half an hour later, it came by a second time. Um, that was friggin' awesome because I was genuinely... Rock. My world was rocked. My mind was blown. And that was a great, great feeling. And I wish I could capture it again. Unfortunately, the second time it came around, we realized, oh, that's a group of airplanes doing refueling from from China Lake right here. It's basic uh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and once you see what it is, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, it's obvious. There's the there's this guy and that guy and the guy, you know, yeah. and you can tell exactly what's happening. Well, there's definitely uh, something that makes us want that feeling um you oh know, it's the best uh, thing in the world yeah it's amazing it really feels like you're stumbling upon something that either no one else has or a few people have and you've got some sort of hidden information or knowledge that you can then use to or something like that it's just it feels like the opposite of boring like just something that like life has some sort of meaning now there's something here that i'm seeing that i'm meant to see or something like that um you know sleep paralysis I've, I've had that too in my in my life and um Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a weird thing, and uh, it's kind of like lucid dreaming in a sense, where uh, at least the qualitative experience of it, where it's very s- surreal. Um, but when it's over, you kind of know, okay, that was real. Like I did just have a lucid dream where I was, you know, I could feel the the railing of the staircase or whatever. I remember feeling it. It is super real. Um, or the feeling, like you said, of being uh, someone on your chest. You know, in different cultures, they call it different things. Uh, you know. Every, every, that's an interesting point about it too that every culture has a, a story yeah. about it um, but uh, there was a documentary that came out about sleep paralysis I think maybe a couple of years back I never caught it did did you like what is no. the research there I, I don't know it's one of those things that seems like okay we should have more research on this by now and maybe it is it's just not publicized you know as much as, as some other things in pop culture right sometimes there's academic stuff going on that uh is not really, you know, a documentary hasn't really come out or a book that, that catches the public eye, so to speak. Um, but what, I mean, what is that sleep paralysis? 
why do we all feel like there's a, de- <laughs> a demon sitting on us? And it's strange, like. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, I, that was I, that was the the, the cultural um, similarities were what I found the most interesting part of that, and and really the best evidence that it's a it's not an actual paranormal creature sitting on you or something. You know, they we every every culture, whatever it is, you know, whoever the whoever the main sort of antagonist in that culture's legend, their pop lore, their folklore, whatever it is, um, that would tend to always be who it was. And I loved the fact that in the United States, it used to be the old hag. Yeah, I was just going to mention the the old hag, yeah. Yeah, where the word haggard came from. I'm feeling haggard today because the old hag was sitting Uh, out there last night. And then with the popularity of Betty and Barney Hill's original ufo abduction in i want to say 1967 and i'm sure that's right plus or minus two years um all of a sudden gray aliens exploded into the pop culture and then we had no more old hag reports suddenly it's alien abductions everyone has gray aliens coming into their room and paralyzing them while they're asleep at night so it's just whatever is in the cultural mindset yeah is what our brains would fill in. Sure, yeah, like in Japan, there was a dragon or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a little gypsy man in the Slavic cultures. It was um, uh, a a beautiful woman from Hindu, from the Hindu gods, I I, I don't recall, in in, in much of India. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful. Um, What about uh, numerology? Now, my mother thinks that she sees 333 all the time and every time there's this meaningful coincidence it's always 333 and i uh, you know i've had this too in my life like I, in 2011 i think i was kind of into the whole mayan calendar 2012 thing and uh you know we would see 1111 on the clock or you know 1221 all the time and we uh-huh. would always point it out but uh, i forget the name of that phenomenon it's a long word it's a german word or something but that phenomenon where like i i, I just bought a kia soul and I've never seen them before I bought them. But once I bought a Kia Soul, I see them everywhere. <laughs> see them everywhere. Yeah. Or you hear a name, you hear someone's name that you've, oh, I've never heard that name before. That's an interesting name. And all of a sudden you hear it every single day. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the same um, thing. I, I know the word you're talking about, but I, I have no idea what uh, it is. The Bader-Meinhof, Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. That's what it's called, I think. Okay, that's not what yeah. I had in mind, but yeah, I, I don't. B-A-A-D-E-R-Meinhof, yeah. yeah. Uh, the illusion in which a word, a name, or other thing that has recently come to one's attention suddenly seems to appear with improbable frequency shortly afterwards. Um, but so that's just attention, right? That's just attention span and sort of what we're focusing on. I mean, it could meaningful things happen at every given time of the day, right? It doesn't. A, cl- a time is just arbitrary. It's just a clock. You know, it's the the planets going around each other, right? I mean, is that is that a bad worldview to have that nothing means? Is that like? Uh, you know the, the the Nietzsche. Nothing means anything. Is that the extreme of a skeptic? Like, could could there be too much skepticism where it just <laughs> there, there's nothing coherent? Nothing means anything. You know, the world is just an abyss and and uh, it's futile and that. Or, well, you know, you know, I, I I hear the I hear that charge being made all the time from you know anyone who's in who's does science writing like I do. We we get. We get emails every single day from people who believe this or that, whatever it is, calling us, you know, shills for the establishment or whatever. And I hear that all the time that, oh, you you must have a life devoid of meaning. How 
how horrible your life must be, how empty and dry and boring every minute of every day. Right. And yet I've, I've never heard anyone who expresses feeling that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I hope you can tell that I have some excitement about solving these mysteries, how, how much fun that is for me. Um, and I'm excited by the fact that when we do solve these mysteries, we understand what's happening better and we can then make better decisions on how to deal with them. Uh, and that's 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 where we get progress that that helps the human race. You know? Right. And and that stuff's actually the truth is is more exciting. It may be harder to find or take longer to get to, but it's the yeah. it's reality. And in, in the end, that's actually what is real should be the most exciting thing, not just what we conjure up or what we we imagine to be real. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's something that 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 I I find in probably 75% of my podcast episodes when we're dealing with something that a lot of people have you know the, the the wrong idea about and maybe that idea to them is is awesome and for, for example I've got a Bigfoot article on my screen right now and I, that that just suggests an example and you might think well gee for whom for whom is that a meaningful subject and you know what's the other side of that coin and just using that as an example there are people who see Bigfoot as some kind of a spiritual interdimensional being. Um, there's a there's a Bigfoot club here in town where I live, and my wife and I went one night just to have a beer with them and listen to what they had to say, and all most of them think it's a real animal. There were a couple of people who thought that it's some weird spiritual interdimensional being of some kind, and they were all good with that, and that's fine. And those people love that, and and they're the kind of people who would hear my explanation of, well, Bigfoot's probably not real and think that I'd live a horrible, dry, meaningless existence. Mm -hmm. But I can then look at the other side of that coin and say, okay, how do we know that Bigfoot's not real? What does that tell us? What, for example, the people who made the Patterson Gimlin film, understanding what was in his mind, why he was doing it, um, what he got out of that. For me, that was a really rich story that gave important insight into people dealing with grief, dealing with personal tragedy and the lengths that they might go to. Um, I guess you'd have to hear my episode on that to understand what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, but, but it's, kind it goes big, to, it's, it's kind of a big subject, but sure. there's a lot there. There's it speaks to there. the sociology, like you mentioned too, uh, right? Of just not only why people believe things, why they think the way they do, but why they would, why they would purport, uh, uh something that is like a hoax or like the in in the speaking of pop culture the jesse smollett thing the 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 hoaxed uh, hate crime like this person went to such a length to create this false scenario that seems so far-fetched like in the in that uh you know i don't know you wonder why people uh is it just simply just attention or is there a lot of layers there uh you know who there must be some deep psych psychological layers to it yeah, that, that, that's that's another great example because now I, I preface this with I don't know the facts of the case mm -hmm. you know, other than what's in the news. And mm -hmm. so that's probably a pretty inaccurate picture in my experience. Um, however, assuming something like that is what happened, that he did hoax this for attention. He thought he was going to lose his job. He wanted to be a larger, more prominent civil rights figure. I don't know, anything like that. Yeah. Those are important psychological lessons for us. And when we do get to the truth of what actually happened there, we have better insight into not just him, but in people in general. 
So I really do think that it's important to actually solve these mysteries and not stop at the popular explanation, whether it's Bigfoot as an interdimensional being or, or whatever it is, there is actually an important lesson that does help us better deal with the world and come up with better solutions to problems. Right. Well, let's get to some maybe juicy topics that people like, maybe just debunking a bunch of stuff. Um, so let's, how about this? Chiropractic, is that total BS? Helps a few people, but not really based in science. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a big topic. Um, so yeah. the, the heart of chiropractic is total BS. However, the big however is that what most chiropractors are actually providing is unlicensed physical therapy. Physical therapy does have therapeutic value. So when you go to your chiropractor and he, you know, maybe he cracks your back, he's also doing basically what amounts to a, a therapeutic deep tissue massage and you are getting benefit from that. Um, the, the cracking your back, I mean, that's just the same as cracking your knuckles. It has yep. no therapeutic value at all. And of course, the, the whole history of chiropractic, this idea that um, um, innate intelligence, which is a, a spiritual fluid akin to the Chinese chi, flows through these meridians in our body and cracking your knuckles and your back is, is going to somehow improve the flow of that and cure all disease. That's total BS. But it is the only thing that separates chiropractors from physical therapists is that chiropractors believe that. If they didn't believe it, they would be DPTs. They would have gone to medical school and become physical therapists or per mm -hmm. perhaps even doctors. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of people believe that a chiropractor is, is a back doctor. That's right, right. They call themselves doctor, even though a doctor of chiropractic is not a recognized medical profession. It's, it's essentially a self-certified. It's like if you and I decided to call ourselves doctor of podcasting yes. and we insist that people call us pod, a doctor. Which we are doctors of podcasting. We are. But... We are doctors. Of, you you must all call now, both of us. <laughs> yeah, um, but yes, yeah, yeah uh, you do have to. I mean, I was looking it up in Canada at least. I mean, you do have to go through like uh, a chiropractic school of some sort. But it's uh, and it is. It does take a long time. Actually, I was surprised. Yeah. I, those yeah. those schools they're not they're not accredited by by well in the United States um, accreditation bodies that grant accreditations to universities. They all have to be approved by the Department of Education. And in the United States, uh, chiropractor schools are not accredited. However, so what they did is they created their own accreditation body. It's uh -huh. like, hey, I'm now the ACME accreditation body and I'm certified to accredit chiropractic schools. So yes, they are doctors and they are from accredited medical schools, but it's not an accreditation that satisfies anyone else's criteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something like seven minimum. It says here, uh, students in Canada required to uh, compete complete a minimum of three years of university before they're eligible for admission to the Doctor of Chiropractic degree, uh, and a minimum of seven years combined prior to graduation and licensure. So, yeah, it's, they make it this long drawn out process, and uh, the the foundations there are pseudoscientific. Yeah, um, um, and and that's that's common worldwide, unfortunately. Um, we have a big problem with um, the whole anti-vaccine movement. Um, people will know that there's a lot of measles cases coming out in uh, in the North America. I'm not sure about 
Europe and that at the moment. But the, the cases that I've seen at least are uh, uh, here in North America. You also have this, um, is it in Oregon? There was the first case in 30 years of a, a six-year-old boy had um, te- tetanus. Uh, or, or, and uh, it, it cost something like, it was like 800000 U.S. Uh, for the treatment. And the parents still afterwards... Uh, refused further immunization recommendations by the doctors and this and that. So, uh, you know, you've, you've mentioned Andrew Wakefield um, yeah. in some of your episodes, and he's a big problem. And we had da- uh, David Robert Grimes on here one time who had a public debate with him once in the UK, and he says, I never should have done it because uh, I gave him a bit more of a platform than he yep. deserved. Um And, you know, he's he's the type of guy that says, you know, just the answers are in my book, buy my book that kind of thing. And it's, uh, <laughs> you know, we see these, the dangers of it. Um, how should we think about the anti-vaccine movement and, and what can, what can we do sort of as citizens other, other than maybe just like, is it, is there a governmental, uh, you know, top down solution to these kind of things? Like, um, or how do you have a solution in mind of that kind of changing the thinking on vaccines? Well, yeah, I do. Um, there's like many problems, a multi-pronged approach is likely to be most successful. And that does include, um, Oregon right now is voting on a measure to, um, eliminate the conscientious objections. So many states in the United States have a conscientious. So it means anyone who doesn't want to, doesn't have to vaccinate their kids and they can still go to public school. That is a public health outrage and it should not be legal in any state. So the we do need government to do more about not letting unvaccinated kids into the general population. Now that's a draconian top-down thing. Yeah. It's appropriate, but we also need to help people um, to come around and to reject this unscientific thinking. To do that, you have to realize it's not the parents who are the problem. The parents are good people who love their children, who believe they're doing the right thing for their kid based on what they've learned. There's nothing evil about that. So we can't be mad at the parents. We have to, um, people like Andrew Wakefield clearly should be, should be arrested and charged with a conspiracy to commit manslaughter on a huge scale. Um, and, and that's something that should have happened long ago. And I still hope that it happens. So we need to get rid of the, um, these deliberately deceptive sources of misinformation like him, because he is deliberately deceptive. He doesn't believe what he says. Mm. Um, And then we can work on education um, of the parents. And I did an episode on this uh, just a few weeks ago about um, how we can better reach people. Why have the existing education programs teaching parents, hey, vaccines work and here's the data. why that has failed and what better approach might work better. And I mean, I can, I can summarize that now if you want, but it might take a few minutes, but sure. Uh, if you'd like, yeah, go yeah, ahead. I, I basically, we, we go to, we go to psychology and we look at the underlying value system of these beliefs. What do the people who reject vaccines have in common? What is the value system that they all share? And can we find an argument within that value system that they're likely to embrace because it's already proven that they're going to reject 
an argument that comes from outside that value system like, hey, look, here's the data. They don't care about the data. It's not about that. And with vaccine parents, it's about two things, it turns out. One, we call it liberty. This case of they see it as government overreach. You know, it's it's another symptom of this whole worldwide wave of populism that's mm -hmm. uh, sweeping everything. Mm -hmm. So they see this as government overreach, government reaching into their lives, government telling them what they can do with their kids. So the counter argument to that is, yes, you're right. Government is corrupt and horrible and evil and big pharma and all of that. But if you're vaccinated, then your body becomes naturally able to fight off this disease if you ever get exposed to it and you will no longer be dependent upon the corrupt medical system to treat it. Your body will be able to fight it off naturally. Right. So that's an example of an argument that they're likely to embrace that's based on their value of liberty. And the other value that they have in common is we call it purity. Um, and that has to do with a, a vaccine is an evil foreign chemical with all these uh, horrible things in it uh, compared to, oh, I can just, you know, give my give my child herbs or, or whatever, and they'll naturally boost their immune system. Something that's nonsensical like that to you and I, but if we tell them that's nonsensical, they're not going to embrace it. They're going to reject that argument. So instead we find an argument based on purity that they will accept. And we, it's, it's a similar one. We say basically something like a, a vaccinated child is equipped to naturally fight off this disease in the future. They're not going to have to require any treatment with chemical medicines, or you're not going to need to be a slave to big pharma. Your body's going to be able to fight it off naturally, because that is, of course, exactly what vaccines do. They prepare your body to be naturally resilient. So you find an argument that's based in the things that are important to them. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Just sort of adopt their value system and argue from their, their point of view rather than sort of the, what they perceive as the opposing point of view. Exactly. Um, speaking of power structures in the government, the, now the big the big conspiracy always here, and and one of the most interesting topics to people for some reason is this idea of the Illuminati, or just the general sense of a few, you know, the top one percent. This idea that there is a, a, a structure of power that controls all the money in the world, and therefore. Uh, they also control sort of what happens in geopolitics and this kind of thing. Is there a line that you can draw in this realm of discussion that sort of shows the true the true system, but doesn't ascribe sort of a, a an evil to it? Like, isn't some of what the Illuminati believers uh, what they're getting at somewhat true that there are some rich, powerful people, but that's just the world we were sort of born into that, you know, do what you can to change it. If you think that's wrong or, or, or this and that, but to, to just, it's sort of a moot point. Do you, do you know what I'm sort of getting at that, that the, of course mm -hmm. there are rich and powerful people, but do they have magical powers? Can they fly? I mean, probably not. They, and can they, it's, it, is it like a chess board that they move the, you know, it's like risk that they're, I don't think it's that literal. Like I think, of course, they might. Rich, powerful people will try to influence things. That's what they're going to do, right? They they need to push their money around and try to w make more money, or maybe you know, philanthropy, like help people. You know, it's not always an evil thing. But anyways, as a bit of a rant of a question, but basically, in a short form, is there some truth to uh, the Illuminati idea? I like to ask people who believe that 
I, I like to ask him, okay, so let's say that you were one of these billion dollar lottery winners and suddenly you are now the elite rich and powerful in the world. What is it, what is it that's going to get to you and make you suddenly start to manipulate the lives of, of all of the rest of us? And they say, well, I would never do that. Yeah. <laughs> say, well, where are you getting it that everyone else is doing that? How are you so much superior to everyone else? And, and, and why is that? Uh, you just got to break it down. And I mean, I mean, people are people. A company is made of people. Uh, even a an evil cabal, if it actually existed, is made of individual people. And right. and people have ethics and moral systems and things that are important to them. And they have parents and kids and family and they love their dogs and they run around in the world. Um, how is it that uh, all of these people have been supposedly motivated to um, turn evil? And why did all the governments of the world decide to hand over their sovereignty to this evil cabal willingly? Um, it just none of it makes any sense. Right. None of it makes any sense. Um, now, I don't, I, th I don't think you get too political. I think you try to stay sort of centrist in a lot of the way you present information and stuff. But is there a link between this idea of the 1%, you know, of course, the Bernie Sanders angle, the 1% and, uh, you know, in the U.S. now you have um, AOC and the sort of left-leaning um, positions about more rhetoric about corporations and, and rich people and a sense that rich people are bad and that corporations are greedy and, and greed is bad and money is bad in a sense. Um, isn't that kind of dangerously... I mean, it's not a, it's not saying that these people are lizard people, um, but it is kind of, it's kind of presenting rich and power, uh, powerful people as bad. And I, uh -huh. I, I kind of see rich and powerful people as the most almost important people because they, they do control uh, and have influence. And, and a lot of that can be for good. And, and the, the fact that society is where it is today is because of a lot of uh, advances in technology and, and innovation and, and, and these different things that drive society that allow us now to live these great lives with iPads and different things. And of course we have areas in the world where there's more suffering than, than us in the first world, but uh, with money and power and influence, we can eventually try to alleviate those things. And I think, isn't that the kind of Steven Pinker view that things are slowly getting generally better for uh, both uh, money-wise in the third world countries and just health-wise. Like, it's not like everything's crashing. But there's this view out there sort of that things are getting very bad and that uh, money and, and power is sort of the, the aim that, uh, in our, our, our crosshairs, so to speak. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's a lot of questions. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you're right that the data shows that it's not just Steven Pinker. It's basically economists worldwide of every political persuasion um, are, are fairly agreed upon the fact that, uh, in general, the living standard for the world is constantly going up and up. Things right. are indeed getting better and better. That's, that's all the data support that. Common sense supports that. Uh, however, as you point out, people always think, oh my gosh, things have never been this bad. But if we go back through history, we find that people have always said that, and they probably always will. And that's because people are just, they're always pissed off about something, whatever it is. And in many cases, the thing that they're upset about is going to be something that largely, it disproportionately governs their daily life. It governs their attitude, um, their, their demeanor, 
throughout the day. Um, just today, in fact, this this I'm still thinking about this. It kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was coming out of a uh, department store, and uh, here's a car backing out of a, a spot, and this old guy who's walking out of the store goes up to the car who's backing out. He leans into the window and says, hey, thank you for your bumper sticker. I really appreciate that. Makes me want to put on a red hat and go out and beat the crap out of everyone. I'm like, whoa, that's that's a thing. This mm -hmm. is an angry old man. <laughs> he just mm -hmm. goes up to the stranger and says, hey, I'm so excited. We're on the same page. Let's go out and beat people up. Yeah. So, yes, this is someone who thinks that there is an enormous, enormous problem in the world. Um, and and that's not uncommon. Yeah, it's um, a perception, right? It, and it, and it, it's it's a perception can sometimes take over what reality, what you're sort of, uh, you know, baseline reality view should be. And you, we have these people that act out in certain ways that, that based on their perception that they, you know, they need to be violent or, or start an uprising or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, which is not you know, good. A lot of times they talk about the pendulum, you know, the way the pendulum is swinging. And, you know, sometimes they say, oh, the pendulum is liberal right now. And now it's conservative. And I don't think it goes that way. I think the pendulum goes like this. Sure. You know, we're all fairly united, fairly moderate. Yep. And now we're at a time like today where you've got, uh, you know, the Trumps over here and the AOCs over here. And both positions are equally extreme. And all of my friends who are on either one of those ends will attack me brutally for saying that <laughs> because they're <laughs> yeah. so convinced that their that their their side is not the extreme side. Their side is perfectly normal and centrist. And it's the other people, whoever they are. That are that are out of control right now. And if you sure. look at their arguments, they really are the same, because where the conservative conspiracy theory is that um, um, the conservatives will say, "Oh, it's um, uh, I'm spacing out." George Soros. George yep. Soros is behind everything. He's financing yep. the caravan, whatever it is. And then if you go to the liberals, they're saying exactly the same thing. You just backspace out the name Soros and type in Koch brothers. Sure. And it's exactly the same conspiracy theory. Um, so really, we're just in a time right now of extreme polarization on, on political questions. Yeah. We're not one way or the other. We're just extremely polarized. And no, I think it'll come back. It makes sense. I mean, um, hopefully it'll come back, uh, come back soon. It's, it's just, I think it's a manifestation of this concept of duality where the yin and yang and the, the, it's something about the way that our brains work that we're very, it's very easy for us to think of things in black and white. Uh, there's, there's, our brains definitely can figure out the gray areas and, and have nuance, but it's mm -hmm. something about, it's more easy to uh, think in a groove and just think, just, just backpedal into your corner uh, of things and just just you know the other side is, is wrong and um but we need i think podcasts like yours and others um out there change that right they they make people think more nuanced uh and and sort of meet in the middle if possible boy i i sure try to i i mean um you know we we do know uh for a fact because of scientific research or i shouldn't say fact i should say the evidence suggests currently that uh People of every demographic are equally susceptible to conspiracy theories. Um, people on the left should not be saying all those far right people are all conspiracy theorists. And people on the right should not be saying all those people on the far left are all conspiracy theorists. Because it's something that cuts 
equally across all demographics, not just across politics, but across age, across gender, across socioeconomic status, across national origin. There really aren't any um, groups of people who are more or less susceptible to um, to conspira conspiracy ideation is the scientific term that we use for tendency toward conspiratorial thought. Uh, it's everywhere. Right. And, um, and the best way to think about that is, hey, if it's everywhere, that means it's in me too. And it's in you too. Mm -hmm. um, there are things that you and I believe that someone would consider a crazy conspiracy theory and sure. vice versa. Now, which that's got nothing to do with whether one of us are, is right or wrong or not. Uh, but it's just something that's always important to keep in mind. And whenever I'm writing an article or uh, planning a skeptoid episode, that's, you know, obviously going after some type of broken thought pattern like this, I constantly remind myself that I'm guilty of the same thing. And how can I frame this argument in a way that acknowledges that and makes it likely to be embraced by people? Right. That's a good point. Um, well, sort of in closing, want to do a little bit of a speed round on a couple interesting topics or uh, things that we can maybe easily debunk. Okay. Um, let's go. Okay. We'll see how fast we can go. Should you wash meat that you get from the grocery store in your kitchen? Like a, you get a, you get a chicken and people, some people say that's gross. If you don't wash it, you should wash it with water to get, instead of just cooking it to get the bacteria. Yeah. I'm going to, my speed round answer is, I don't know. Um, what, what seems to me is, I mean, washing is going to get some bacteria off the surface, but if it's got a bacterial infection, it's going to be inside as well. But cooking, you should cook your meat. That's cook, all it takes. Cooking meat. My speed round rebuttal slash answer is if you wash your meat, you, you could get spray bacteria all over your kitchen sink and that could spread. Well, and as we know, that the way. kitchen is the most bacteria infested room of the house. Right. Far worse than your toilet seat. Um, those comparisons you see between Lincoln and Kennedy and that their secretaries were oh, yeah, inverse wonderful. names and the, the hundred years apart, they were elected and this and that just some coincidences. And then a bunch of, I'm not even phrasing this like a question. I'm just answering this now myself, I guess they're just <laughs> coincidences. And then some of them are just false falsities. Right. And then yeah, they just, some of them are just made up. They were just wrong. And yeah. a lot of the ones that seem, wow, that's really improbable. That's some, there's something there. Um, when you look more into it, you find that it's not at all improbable. Some of them are actually probable. Um, some of them would apply to anyone, Trump and <laughs> Hillary. I mean, you sure. could come up with any two things. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I, I did a Skeptoid podcast episode and there, I thought that one was super interesting because yep. all of those little similarities illustrate some different point of a perceptual error that we all make. We see two things that seem to be the same. Yep why are they the same or why are they not the same? So I'm going to be like Andrew Wakefield and say, buy my book. So listen to that podcast. Okay. Yeah. There's another one with football, two football players. I, I forget the names. I'll oh, forgive me. But uh, uh, someone called into, I think it was the Adam Carolla show recently and, and, and a similar thing to the Lincoln Kennedy thing, but he's two football players. You know, the one got injured on this date and the other guy got this score. And this. so th there's different ways to, uh, to do that. And, and, show it in a way that makes people believe that it's some crazy, uh, meaningful coincidence. But, uh, next, uh, should you install a water filter on your tap? I guess it depends where you live. Maybe a water filter for what? It depends for... where you're trying to get out. Okay. 
if you're trying to get out uh, chlorine, you know, yes, you can get out some of the chlorine with a charcoal filter or, I mean, depending on the size of the filter, there's filters that go down to just about any size you want. So it depends what you're worried about. Um, okay. I would say in most cases, there's no realistic need for it unless it's known that your municipal water supply has some contamination and you would have gotten an alert about that. Okay. And fluoride in the water is good, right? Helps. Fluoride in the water is, well, fluoride in the water, we can't help it because it's natural. Uh, and in some, added fluoride, well, added fluoride is fluoride. It's an, it's a chemical element. It's the same, whether you add it or whether it's natural. Okay. So for maximum, um, for maximum health, uh, and, and tooth decay can lead to infections that can cause deaths. So this is not just about, you know, dental cavities. Yep. Um, it's, I believe it's 0.7 parts per million right now is the ideal level. So in many municipalities, we reduce the natural level of fluoride to 0.7 and in others we raise it. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. To, to moderate it to that ideal level. Right. And you got it in your toothpaste oftentimes as well, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and, and people often say, well, why don't they do it in Europe? Europe is so much more enlightened than, than the Americas. Yeah. And, and the answer to that is, well, because Europe has a medieval uh, water system, basically. Their infrastructure just doesn't support it. So instead of fluoridating water, they fluoridate their salt. Mm -hmm. um, to get people the same, the same amount. Right. You did an episode recently on the keto diet and, and just fad diets in general. And yeah. one of your statements you often say on your podcast is that uh, regarding diets is that we're omnivores. And to generally, you know, the, the, the best general advice for, for eating and diets is uh, perhaps just eat a variety of things, uh, you know, not Twinkies, that kind of thing, but like just basic foods that everyone has always kind of had. You know, you talk about ancient peoples and the different specific diets they've had, you know, certain peoples that have the Inuit that have lived off saturated fats and the, and the others that have lived on grains and that kind of thing. And so the keto diet, what's the short version of the, uh, it's not a miracle, right? Just like these other diets, but it can perhaps help certain people with certain conditions. Is that the, is that the, yes, if you are epileptic, then there is some evidence. If you're a child and you're epileptic, there is reasonably strong evidence that putting your body into a perpetual state of ketosis uh, will moderate your epileptic seizures to some degree. That's really the only thing that we can say for sure. The rest of it is is interesting and it's not implausible. It's um, Steve Novella, a friend of mine, called it quasi-plausible. Because when your brain is in, when your body is in ketosis, your cells are using a whole different channel for gaining the, the energy cell. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's burning uh, ketone bodies instead of uh, sucrose, uh, glucose. And when your brain cells are doing that, we've, we're talking about a different brain chemistry now. So there are a lot of things that are potentially not implausible that the keto diet might address. But you should think of the keto diet as a potential medical treatment for things like that that is so far without good evidence but is being actively researched. You shouldn't think of it as any kind of a miracle way uh, to lose weight because it's no better of a way to lose weight than any other restrictive diet that ends up with you eating less food. Sure. And, and people's uh, reports about better energy and this kind of thing, a lot of that could be placebo as well, right? Well, I, we know a lot of that is false because we've tested that. And uh, with elite athletes trying to run on ketone bodies rather than on sugars, rather than on carbohydrates, um, consistently they perform more poorly. 
Mm. So uh, it's not a way to uh, in, enhance your athletic performance at all. Mm -hmm. um, so one bigger topic that maybe we could do in a, sh a bit shorter form here just to, to finish everything off, because um, okay. I think it is one of the most important uh, topics regarding conspiracy theories, and that is 9-11. Um, I do try to talk about it with every uh, guest I have on that is uh, in the world of skepticism and that kind of thing, because uh, I find to this day that it is still one of the most perpetuated uh, conspiracy theories and the evidence that these uh, people have for it being an insight job is just getting worse and worse and worse. The memes, the JPEGs are literally getting more blurry <laughs> as the years go on. Like the more they're getting shared, it's just such, it's just pixels now, uh, you know, circles of some stuff coming out the building and saying a little bit of text in the meme. And it's like, this is supposed to give your whole worldview here, this little JPEG shared on um, uh, Facebook. But, what is the maybe the the largest point that you could say to someone who thinks that 9/11 uh, or disbelieves the 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 official story? What what is uh, have you have an experience maybe with converting anybody or any points that stood out as as really powerful? No, I think that um, the short answer no, I haven't. No, nope. I, when when you when you consistently put forth the science of what we know and how we know it, occasionally there are people who will go past the threshold and begin to accept science. Uh, but I don't bother to have that debate anymore because 99.9% .9 of the time it's going to be a, a waste of breath. Uh, for a conspiracy theory that's now that old and would require, you know, the the silencing of so many tens of thousands of witnesses. And I mean, it's it's so past the point of, of ludicrous that... Um, yeah. It's not, it's not worth it having a conversation. So anyone who still believes that, um, I, I have to go fight other battles. I don't, I mean, I don't bother. My thing, the reason why I'm still concerned about it is, uh, not that I'm an expert, but I'm very interested in geopolitics and, and sort of um, sure. how things run and, and how countries interact and how, you know, like you said at the beginning of, of the show here, the real reality and why it's more exciting and why it's more interesting and, and why it's more impactful than a false reality that we believe. Um, just some silly thing that the the president of the United States was somehow in on, you know, killing his own people just to justify some foreign intervention. Like, I mean, and two million, you know, ceiling tiles with bombs in them and, you know, this kind of thing. It, it, I feel like, it, and I, I've said this before and some people have disagreed with me, I think it was Mick West. I said, shouldn't people read more books like Perfect Soldiers by Terry McDermott or his new one, The Hunt for KSM? You know, these real CIA, FBI stories, you know, it's like the movies. It's cool stuff. You want to read this and see what really went on. Um, and, and he said, no, because there's so many other books that say the opposite. It's not just about giving someone books to read because there's so many other, and I don't know if I agree with him there or not, because I don't know if you've read that book, Perfect Soldiers, but it's, it's just the outline of how the hijackers went about, uh, you know, the whole journey from start to finish. And it's real events like, you know, you can't debunk those, those stories. Let, let, let me give my answer to this question. Okay. Um, and, and this applies to a, a true believer in anything, because I'll often get an email from someone saying, Hey, my mom's dying of cancer and she's relying on reflexology to treat it. Something like that. What do I do? Um, I, I made a podcast episode. The title was Emergency Handbook, What to Do When a Friend Loves Woo. So whatever it is, whether your friend is into 9-11 or, 
or reflexology to treat their cancer, whatever it is, whatever strange belief that it is, my advice is do not ever directly attack their, their, their cherished uh, sacred cow. Don't go after that. Don't open with that. Right. I'm saying don't open. With. That's sure. a bad opening. Instead, find something that you're both going to agree on. Mm -hmm. um, when people ask me, what podcast, which of your episodes should I play for this guy? Who yeah, yeah. This? I say, don't play him that one. Play him <laughs> this one instead. Here's this really cool one on the suicide dogs of Overton Bridge or the Loch Ness Monster or um, the, the, the Zuma, the Phantom Satellite. There's yeah. a lot of really cool stuff that are gateway drugs to thinking scientifically. Right. Because when I'm, when I'm on a road trip with friends who haven't heard my podcast and I play an episode, they always say, that was really cool. Play another one. Mm -hmm. So you can get people interested and want to know more, get them, get them excited about scientific skepticism and skeptical analysis of pop right. culture. And they will eventually come around on their own. I guarantee that that'll happen, but it's not going to happen in one day by opening with directly challenging their sacred cow. Sure. Then that's a very good point. I think it's a good point to finish on too, is it, it, you know, it makes us, we want to open with the biggest punch because you think that that'll make the biggest impact, right? You want to just shut down their entire view and say, no, that's impossible because of yeah. this event. And uh, that's a good you point. With to that, sort they're of... going to cut you off, shut sure. you down, and not listen to anything else you have to say. That's a really good point. Um, on that note, I want to thank you again for your time, Brian. And um, we appreciate you coming on the show to shed light on all this stuff. Um, where can people find uh, your podcast and your website and, and that kind of thing? Just come to skeptoid.com. You got everything right there. That's the home base. Right on. Okay. Well, thanks again. And we'll catch you on skeptoid podcast we'll be listening all right man thanks a lot it's been fun